This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Catherine Taunton, and today I'm joined by Jamie Suskind. He's going to tell me about the Court of Appeals decision in Kong and Gulf International Bank, a case about whistleblowing. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Can I start by asking you to tell our listeners what the issue for the Court of Appeal was in Kong? Yes. So this case was about what's commonly referred to as the separability principle. And this is the principle that where an employee has made a protected disclosure and then been dismissed or subjected to a detriment, the employer may be able to argue that although they were dismissed for something related to that disclosure, the other thing can be treated as genuinely and properly separable. So it wasn't what you said, it was how you said it. It wasn't what you said, it was what you implied about another person's competence or integrity. It wasn't what you said, it was the reaction it provoked in others and the subsequent breakdown in workplace relationships. It wasn't what you said, it was the fact that this was your 10th complaint in a year and you have become unmanageable. And so what this case was about was about the nature and scope of this separability principle and also whether it is a principle at all. The claimant in Kong had brought a claim for detriment on the grounds of having made a protected disclosure, as well as a claim for automatically unfair dismissal on the basis of having made a protected disclosure. So before we get into the details of what Kong was about, it might be helpful if we just recap briefly the law that applies. Yes, so there are two key provisions at play here, both in the Employment Rights Act 1996. The first is Section 47B, which contains detriments. The second is Section 103A, which concerns dismissal. Section 47B1 says that workers have the right not to be subjected to a detriment by any act or deliberate failure to act by their employers, done on the ground that they made a protected disclosure. And subsection 1A is essentially the same, but it allows them to claim against colleagues and other agents of the employer. So what does it mean to say that something was done on the ground that? Well, it's been well established since the case of Fessit and NHS Manchester that Section 47B is infringed where the protected disclosure materially influences the treatment of the employee in question. But that's actually a pretty low hurdle. It just needs to be more than trivial. And how does that differ from the test when we're looking at automatically unfair dismissal? So in Section 103A, the test is whether the reason, or if more than one, the principal reason for the dismissal was that they made a protected disclosure. And that is a different test, and it is a higher test to surpass if you're a claimant. So, Jamie, we should probably tell our listeners something about the facts in Kong. Yes. So it concerns the claimant, who was Miss Kong, and she was the head of financial audit at the respondent, which was a bank. And she made a protected disclosure concerning something called the Master Risk Participation Agreement template. Is that right? That is right. And for all those Master Risk Participation Agreement template connoisseurs and enthusiasts out there, I have to say... We won't be focusing on that in this podcast. Oh no, I can see our listener numbers dropping right now. Well, for those who are remaining, let us say simply this. She made a disclosure. She said that a particular template that the bank was using was unsuitable for the purpose to which it was being put. The claimant made the disclosure to head of legal. And how did the head of legal take it? She didn't take it well. Now, the parties disagreed about exactly what happened. But in essence, she left the room. She sent an email the next day which said, I did not walk out with anger. I walked out like I did because I was upset and not surprisingly. You were, in effect, questioning my ability to do my job. The day after the conversation that took place, the claimant had sent another email essentially containing the same allegation. And that was what prompted the head of legal to send that reply. 
So there was an unpleasant incident and things snowballed from there. And I think it's worth saying at this point that one of the interesting things or striking things about the facts of this case is that the claimant's conduct around the making of the disclosures wasn't really of the sort that one might immediately see it as being misconduct of itself or highly objectionable or disruptive. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's totally fair. There was some context here, which was that according to the tribunal, other colleagues had described her in the past as being challenging or pernickety or inflexible or someone who lacked softer interpersonal skills, which frankly can be said about a lot of us who work in law or audit. Speak for yourself, Jamie. (laughs) But, But in the event, the tribunal thought that her concerns were reasonable. Contrary to what was said against her, she didn't actually question the professional integrity of the head of legal, just her legal awareness. And she did later send a conciliatory email, which said that she had no intention to hurt her in any way, and she had no concern over her professional integrity. So this wasn't a case where the claimant who'd made the disclosure was abusive to the colleague to whom she made it, or used racist language, or anything like that? No, nothing like that at all. No no coffee was thrown, no insults were hurled, no violence was threatened. This was a head of audit forcefully doing her job. What was the outcome at the employment tribunal? So she brought a claim for ordinary unfair dismissal and she won that claim. She brought a Section 47B claim on the grounds that she'd been subjected to detrimental treatment by the response of the head of legal. And that claim was found to have been out of time, which was the reason that it failed. She brought a claim under Section 103A for automatic unfair dismissal. That claim was dismissed, as was another claim for wrongful dismissal. And how did the separability principle play into the employment tribunal's analysis? Well, the separability principle was really important here because the tribunal distinguished between two things. It found that the claimant had made protected disclosures, but that actually those disclosures were not the reason or principal reason why she was dismissed. They found that she was dismissed for conduct, specifically that she had questioned the head of legal's professional awareness or integrity. Now, That didn't mean that it was fair for her to be dismissed for that reason, which is why she won her unfair dismissal claim. But it did mean that she couldn't succeed in showing that the reason or principal reason for her dismissal for the purposes of her 103A claim was that she'd made protected disclosures. And what's the significance of the fact that Miss Kong was successful on ordinary unfair dismissal, but her claim was dismissed in respect of whistleblowing dismissal? The significance, as many of our listeners will know, is that compensation for ordinary unfair dismissal is capped, whereas compensation for whistleblowing dismissal is not. So you can be talking about awards and damages that are multiples larger than those that you might get for ordinary unfair dismissal, which is why a lot of these claims very much focus on the whistleblowing aspect. And at trial, the ordinary unfair dismissal aspect can almost play second fiddle. And it was the automatically unfair dismissal claim that was ultimately went on appeal to the EAT. Is that right? That's right. And before the EAT, the claimant essentially made two arguments. She firstly said that the tribunal had made a mistake by failing to impute the head of legal's motivation for her detrimental treatment to those who ended up dismissing her because the people who dismissed her were not the head of legal. That's the duty point. Exactly. And the EAT dismissed this and the Court of Appeal didn't hear it. The second challenge, which did make it to the Court of Appeal, was the challenge to the tribunal's conclusion that Miss Kong's conduct was separable from the protected disclosures, the so-called separability ground. And what did the Court of Appeal decide? Its decision can be summarised in a few reasonably short principles. 
The first is that it found that in principle, it is okay to draw a distinction between a protected disclosure on the one hand and conduct associated with or consequent on that disclosure on the other hand. So for example, yes, a decision maker can legitimately distinguish between a protected disclosure and the offensive or abusive manner in which it was made. So in essence, it upheld the separability principle. It did. And the way it put it was that the protected disclosure may form the context for dismissal, but without being the reason or principal reason as required by 103A. But the Court of Appeal did also want to stress something else, which was that the so-called separability principle is not a rule of law or a basis for deeming an employer's reason to be anything other than what the facts disclose it to be. It is simply a label, the Court of Appeal said, that identifies what may in a particular case be a necessary step in the process of determining what, as a matter of fact, was the real reason for the treatment. The point being, the separability principle, it says, is shorthand for a kind of factual analysis about what actually happened, not some highfalutin principle of law. Another interesting thing about the case by the time it reached the Court of Appeal was that there was an intervention from Protect, the whistleblowing charity. And I should say at this point that our colleague Andrew Smith was junior counsel for Protect. That's our lovely colleague Andrew Smith, who is, of course, well known as an employment law barrister, but obviously best known for having hosted episode two of this very podcast with such distinction. Yes, we're not going to mention that further because during his episode, Andrew developed a quiz for Sean Jones, his guest, and I haven't done that. So there won't be any quizzes, well, I'm, Jamie. I'm very relieved to hear that. One of the submissions that Protect made to the Court of Appeal was that there should be a structured analysis which takes into account the level of unreasonableness, if we can put it that way, of the employee's conduct. And that only when it reaches a certain threshold can the separability principle come into play. What Protect was arguing was that conduct should only really be considered separable from protected disclosures if it constituted wholly unreasonable behaviour or serious misconduct in itself. And if it didn't meet that test, then it couldn't be seen as properly separable from the making of the protected disclosure. That argument was based on a long line of cases arising in the trade union and health and safety contexts. And Protect was inviting the Court of Appeal to apply the same kind of analysis here. But the Court of Appeal rejected the idea that there is some objective standard that the employee's conduct has to meet in order for this principle to apply. Is that right? That's exactly right. And what the Court of Appeal said is, yes, it, it's likely to be highly relevant if what they've done is very objectionable or unreasonable, because that's going to suggest, as a matter of fact, that it might be separable but that there's no objective line in the sand that should be drawn along the lines that Protect were urging. And really what the Court of Appeal was saying was, don't add a gloss to the statutory test of causation. So what do you make of the Court of Appeal's decision? What's interesting about this case is that it's trying to reconcile two conflicting intuitions. We all know or have seen cases where someone has been a whistleblower, but they've also been offensive or abusive or otherwise unreasonable, and we know that the reason they were really dismissed or disciplined was because of their behaviour, not because they blew the whistle. And for those people, it seems wrong that they should be able to shelter behind whistleblowing law as a kind of cover for their otherwise unreasonable conduct. At the same time, almost every whistleblower annoys someone because it's inherent in the act of telling someone that they've got something wrong or that they've broken the law 
that that's going to prompt strong reactions, that people are going to be defensive, that people are going to be hurt and retaliate. And in those cases, even if the person is a little rude or offensive in the way they say it, wasn't Parliament's intention to protect them? And that, it seems to me, is the essential tension at the heart of this case. And I suppose one of the difficulties from the point of view of the whistleblower is they don't always know how their employer is going to react. So they might be trying as best they can to behave reasonably. But if it's viewed as being unreasonable conduct by the employer, this case would seem to suggest that they won't have the protection if the employment tribunal finds the reason for their dismissal was conduct. Yes. So say you have a whistleblower who does say that the head of legal is getting the law wrong. That might prompt a really violent and upset reaction, but the whistleblower might be right. But if what is found is that it was the questioning of the professional competence rather than the disclosure of information, which led to that person being dismissed or subjected to a detriment, then that person who was just doing their job might be deprived of the protection that whistleblowers are supposed to enjoy. But isn't the ultimate point that the Court of Appeal is really underlining that the test under 103 is a test about the motivations of the dismissing officer subjectively rather than reason taken at a more abstract or objective level. That's certainly right, yes. So, Jamie, how do you think tribunals will now draw the line between conduct which is inherent to the making of a protected disclosure and conduct which can be separated from it? The Court of Appeal says at paragraph 56, common sense and fairness dictate that tribunals should be able to recognise these kinds of distinctions. Well, again, not a grand principle, not a line in the sand, but guidance for tribunals to exercise their own judgment. There is a, an interesting grey area here, which is, let's say a, an employee blows the whistle and it gives rise to a natural and inevitable feeling of anger and upset on the part of the person who they blow the whistle to. It seems to me to be likely that a tribunal in those circumstances would say that the upset is so closely connected to the whistleblowing, it's so inherently related to it, that it can't be treated as something separate. But let's say someone blows the whistle and the person listening gets the wrong end of the stick. So they wrongly think that their integrity is being criticised. They wrongly think that they are being accused of dishonesty. And for that reason, they subject someone to a detriment or dismiss them. Now, the question is whether them getting the wrong end of the stick is separable from the person making the protected disclosure. Now, on one harsh view, you might say it is actually an entirely separate thing. So the dismissal is unfair under Section 98, but not under 103A. Or you might say that it is inevitably and closely connected with the disclosure that was made. And it seems to me the different tribunals might say different things. What do you think the practical implications of the Court of Appeals judgment will be? Well, look, it sounds obvious, but... The implication of this decision is that if you're going to blow the whistle, you're going to be safer if you do it in a way that is as polite, as courteous as possible, and in a way that no one could possibly say you were making an attack on someone else's professional integrity or competence. This may all sound like treading on eggshells, but in reality, whistleblowers are more likely to succeed if there is no way that any element of their conduct can be described as separate from the making of the protected disclosure. So if there's just nothing that the employer is going to be able to credibly point to as separate misconduct. Exactly. But of course, I'm aware there's an element of unreality here. We know that many whistleblowers blow the whistle without being aware of the legislation, without thinking through fully the consequences of what they're doing by reacting in the moment to what they perceive to be 
a problem. But in reality, what this decision means is that the more you do in or around making protected disclosures that might be seen as extraneous or separable conduct, the more risk you have as a litigant that that other conduct will be found to be the reason you were dismissed, not blowing the whistle. Any other practical implications for litigants or those advising them? As we discussed earlier, there is already this difference between Section 47B claims and Section 103A claims. The difference being that under Section 47B, all you need to show is a material influence of the protected disclosure on the detriment. Whereas for 103A, you need to show that it was the reason or the principal reason. And to me, that gulf between those two tests of causation has only been widened here because there is much, much more risk under Section 103A that conduct is found to be separable than there is under Section 47B. Because under Section 47B, even if there is separate conduct or separate misconduct, and it does play a part in the decision to dismiss or subject you to a detriment, it doesn't matter as much as long as the whistleblowing was a material influence. So does that mean, Jamie, that claimants are always going to be well advised to bring a Section 47B claim rather than just relying on undisfair dismissal? Yes. And I think for those of us who plead these claims, it's something to have in mind. What should those advising employers take away from this judgment? Well, it seems to me that when you're preparing evidence for trial, if your client's case is going to be that the person was dismissed for something that was separable from the disclosure rather than the disclosure itself, then the evidence should very clearly explain that and explain why. These are incredibly fact-sensitive decisions and the tribunal will be assisted by witness statements that really explain that it wasn't the disclosure of the information, that it was the way in which it was done or the context or something else. And if you don't have that evidence, you're not going to be able to persuade the tribunal that you're right and the claimant's wrong. Is the point for employers the one which it always is in dismissal type cases, which is make sure that you're going to have good evidence to show what the reasons for dismissal were, even if you're likely to be in the territory, as they were in this case, that that dismissal might be ordinarily unfair under Section 98. It's still going to help you defeat a claim of automatically unfair dismissal if you can show that the genuine reason was something separate from the protected disclosures. Yes, I agree. And if you have documents which show that the reason or principal reason for dismissal was what you say it is rather than what the claimant says it is, then you're going to be in a better position at trial. Because fundamentally in Kong, the point was that the employment tribunal just did accept the respondent's evidence that it had found what the claimant had said to the head of legal to be objectionable. The employment tribunal just accepted that evidence as genuine. It did. And I think that's something that people will be testing the limits of in, in future litigation because it does seem to me the breakdowns in communication and misunderstandings and people getting the wrong end of the stick are inherent to this kind of employment law conflict. And it will be interesting to see how employment tribunals react to that kind of argument. That was Jamie Suskin talking to me, Catherine Taunton, about Kong and Gulf International Bank. You can find the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us, employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com. 